You're listening to The Ripple Affect with your hosts, Cheech and Nippy, a podcast that explores how individual change has the capacity to affect the whole. From neuroscience to donuts, we're two sisters with a deep curiosity for ancient wisdom and modern knowledge, and we're obsessed with learning alongside you because we don't know. <laughs> Let's dive in. Hi, Issa here. In today's episode, I dive into an array of topics with neurobiologist Dr. Barbara Thayer. Sexual motivation, childhood brain development, encoding memories through long-term potentiation. Don't worry, we'll discuss what that means in layman's terms, are just a few of the topics that we get into. We also go into habit creation in the brain, the body-brain-nervous system connection, and pharmaceutical effects on women. We cover differences between the mind, the brain, and consciousness, how to downscale fear, resilience mindset, acceptance, ease, self-regulation, self-esteem, positive psychology, and so much more if you can believe it. I can make you one promise. By the end of this episode, you're going to know more about your brain and change. Dr. Barbara Thayer has her PhD in neuroscience and behavior from UCSB. After graduating, she was hired, much to her parents' relief, working for a major medical device manufacturer. She returned to academia as a lecturer at California State University, Channel Islands, which is how I have the pleasure of knowing her. She's one of my favorite professors. She teaches classes like behavioral neuroscience and psychopharmacology and neuroendocrinology. So cool. Her current research is primarily focused on the role of hormones and cognition and how fluctuating hormones in the female affect and don't affect cognitive process, such as attention and memory. I wanted Dr. Thayer to be one of our first guests because she's so knowledgeable and so open-minded, and I've just found it really easy to gain knowledge from her. So I trust that that's going to be the case for all of you today. I'm so excited for you to listen. <laughs> I'm here today with Dr. Thayer, one of my favorite professors ever. <laughs> and today we're going to be talking to her a little bit about herself. We mentioned in the pre-talk before we just started recording that we agree you probably don't want a neurobiology lecture. So we're going to try and keep it layman's and also just kind of follow the path of the conversation. So Dr. Thayer, welcome. Thanks, Isa. I'm really glad to be here today. This is really exciting. I've never done a podcast before, so this will be kind of kind of entertaining. Yeah, me neither. So we're in it together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, before we jump into any any of these questions that I've kind of pre-laid for us, do you, I would love to just hear a little bit about how you found your way to this career because I'm sure there was um, a lot of changes involved. I would love for you to share it. Sure. So. So I'm old. <laughs> How far back do you want me to go? Should we talk a little bit about high school? Let's talk a little bit about high school. Because that was that was not a good fit for me. I didn't like it. So I kind of stopped going. <laughs> then I kind of got in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, that didn't kind of work out. So, you know, I ended up talking to my counselor and she helped me put together sort of an exit strategy. And I left at the end of my junior year. Um, and as a result, I'm one of the few people I know who has a PhD, but no high school diploma. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. But I don't like really advertise, hey, I didn't graduate from high school. You know? <laughs> Although, I mean, I suppose I could. But um, just on the idea that, you know, I don't know, things happen the way that they happen. And, and we make the best decisions we can at the time, you know. And at the time, that was 100% the right decision for me. Like, high school was just not a good fit on so many levels. And at the time, um, uh, UC, the UC system, University of California system, had some options for early admission. So I was able to do well enough on my, my SAT test scores and a couple other things that I got in a year early. So it was great. So I got to start college a little, uh, a little bit early. Um, but unfortunately, there wasn't any money to pay for my education. And it turns out that at 17, I wasn't very good at working full time and going to school and trying to pay my bills. And <laughs> I, I bit off a little more than I could chew. So, so I, I left. I stopped going to school and I took about 10 years off, honestly. I didn't mean for it to kind of be 10 years, but it's just kind of 10 years goes by pretty quick sometimes. It does, yeah. 
and then I went back to school and I was very anxious about it. Um, you know, just feeling like, you know, how is, how am I going to be able to manage this? You know, and I actually went back um, through this program that they had at the community college where I went to called the Women's Reentry Program, which was wonderful. That place, it was such a gift. They really, they, they, their goal was to address women who'd been out of college for like at least five years. So you come back and new systems and new things and potentially managing, you know, other life responsibilities and in particularly addressing women who'd, who'd left college to have kids and were coming back to finish their degree. So that was fantastic. And I just loved that program. It was wonderful. Um, so I came back through the women's reentry program, which was fantastic. And turns out I was kind of good at school and I kind of liked that. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll be an English major because I liked reading and writing and stuff like that. And I thought, okay, that, that sounds like fun. So I kind of did a little bit of that for a while. And I had to take this class, um, or I, I ended up taking a class in, in biopsychology. And it, it met a science requirement. So I was very afraid of science. I thought I wasn't very good at science. And, and so I thought, well, this is like psychology. And I like psychology. That's interesting. And, and it meets that whole science requirement. I thought, okay, it's sort of like soft science, right? Like I can handle this. So I took that class and I fell in love. I just loved it. I couldn't get enough. I just thought this is the most interesting thing I've ever learned about in my whole life. And I just, I just loved it. So I finished the class. And then I went to like every bookstore within a hundred miles and bought everything I could possibly find <laughs> and was reading all these things that I like didn't know like 90% of what was going on, but I could get bits and pieces. And I, and one of my friends came over and he was like, why is that not your major? And I was like, it's a major. Like I could do this all the time. Like I didn't even know, you know? So I got hmm. on the internet and the internet at that time was like baby internet. It was not like it is now. This was a long time ago. And I found a couple of schools that actually offered you know, um, biopsychology or physiological psychology as a major. And one of them was UCSB. So I finished up my stuff at community college. I was uh, accepted for a transfer to UCSB in the biopsych major. I finished up my, and one of the reasons why I wanted to go to UCSB was at that time, they were ranked number one in the nation for undergraduate research opportunities. And I was really interested in research and this idea that I could spend my time asking questions and finding out the answers because my brain does that anyway. So I'm like, well, what if I could get paid? <laughs> like, that'd be amazing. I wait a minute. I can get paid to do what I'm already doing in my head all day long. <laughs> yes, exactly. I thought this is crazy. So um, yeah, so it was great. I started with research as an undergrad. I finished my bachelor's degree. I got accepted to the doctoral program at UCSB. Um, and that was really interesting, a really, really fun time. And I really enjoyed all the different things that I got to learn. You know, I just love to learn and think about these sorts of questions. Yeah. And um, what did you do your thesis on? So my dissertation was actually an investigation of sexual motivation in the female rat. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. It, when, you, when you look at people's dissertation work, most of it is pretty stupid, honestly. <laughs> Well, at that point, like you've gone, you've done so much school and you, you yeah. really have to just get through and use all your skill sets and apply them. Yeah. And it's not always, you're not always able to really get to the nitty gritty to find something and discover something that's going to change common knowledge for everything. You know, you're yeah. just, you're still, you're still exploring. You're not going to come to a conclusion every time that's you know, exactly the socks off. And I think it's more yeah. common not to than to actually have something oh. that's really profound at that stage. Especially with dissertation stuff. And it's really about sort of developing your research skills and developing your writing skills and developing your critical thinking skills and your analysis. And it's really about sort of changing the way you think, you know, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. And that's really, I think I noticed that probably the most when I finished my bachelor's degree. This is, it's one of those funny things that sort of stuck in my head. There was something going on with my computer and I had to replace one of the drives. I'm, I'm not like a tech person at all. Like that's not my thing. And I thought, huh, well, I have a bachelor's degree. This can't be that hard. <laughs> and I, I did it. I opened my computer. I figured out which drive wasn't working. I took it out. I got a new one, replaced it and it worked. I thought, okay, you know, so even though I don't, I mean, I never took a single computer science class. I don't know anything about it. I know how to turn things on and off and, you know, everything else. I just click around until it kind of works, you know, <laughs> like most of us, frankly, yeah, it, you know, so. But this idea that, you know, what I learned from school was how to think. And what I learned from school was how to believe in myself. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah, I was just going to say self-confidence. It really does. Your self-esteem and your self-confidence because you you work that ability. You know you're able. Every time you get through something, you're like, okay, I'm able. I'm able. I, I'm comp Your competence increases and increases and increases until you kind of build up that self-esteem to go, I yeah, I can take on some stuff. I'm, I yeah. can do this, you know? Yeah. Well, and just the willingness to fail too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, if I can't do it, so what? I can put my computer back together. The world won't end. You know. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think exactly. that was I, maybe that's one of those things too that that we acquire as we get older. You know, it's that willingness to fail, and that failure doesn't have the consequences that we often think it does. <laughs> 
Yeah. And it's inevitable. I mean, like we were, I was just uh, talking uh, to my sister about the phases of change, the psychological phases of change. And, and the, you know, the last phase is relapse. I mean, most of the time you're going yeah. to, you're going to fail. And then when you account yeah. for that and you go like, oh, that's just part of life. And it's not, you know, wrapped in with shame and guilt and you're pulling, spiraling down your self-esteem because of that one thing that didn't quite go the way you foresaw it going, yeah. <laughs> then you can kind of give yourself more grace and release and kind of untie all that other stuff and just be like, oh, well, that didn't work where, you know, what did I learn? How do I go forward? Yeah. You know, I'm not going to be crying on the floor or like, it's not going to ruin me. I'm not going to die, you know. Well, there might be a little crying <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> You're going to get up. <laughs> yes, you are. You're going to get up. So can you tell us a little bit about, I remember when we were learning about the very early development of the brain and mm. how we're born with a massive amount of potential, essentially, and then it yes. just gets pared down. Can you can you kind of elaborate on that concept? Because I remember thinking that, that was sure. very fascinating and also thinking like, wow, I just want to give my nieces and nephews like as much information as I can while they're little because they, they really can take it all in. And stimulation is is so important for the brain. So when we're born, your brain has way more neurons, which are the cells of the brain. You have way more neurons than you need. Your brain doesn't know. It's not pre-programmed to identify what's going to be needed in the developing or adult organism. So basically, it's like, well, here's some possibilities, you know, and so you build this structure, you know, during sort of embryonic and fetal development, you build this structure that has the potential to go lots and lots of different ways, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we find then um, is that over time, the unnecessary parts get pruned away. Your brain is really energy expensive, like it uses up a lot of your, a lot of your body's energy sources, right? So your brain needs to become as streamlined as possible so that you're an efficient organism. We don't want to have this giant thing sucking up all the energy in your body, increasing your caloric requirements to do nothing when its output isn't valuable. So your brain tends to trim away all the stuff that isn't useful. Um, keeping that in mind then, what that means that sort of like during development then is that the more stimulus or stimulation that you're exposed to, the more your brain is likely to hang on to those connections. And, mm -hmm. and I, I've recently seen some ads for First Five California, talk to your baby, sing to your baby, read to oh, your yeah. baby. Oh my gosh. Right. Don't just yeah. look at your phone. Yeah. And this is why, because that early stimulation that you provide to your baby, the more you engage with your baby, the more your baby's brain goes, aha, I need this part. I need that part. I need this other part. I need more in my auditory stuff and my auditory cortex. So the auditory part of my brain, so I can hear and understand speech and more of the motor parts of my brain, so I can do things and talk and, and um, more sort of cortical, you know, that outer stuff of your brain. Um, so I can remember things and learn things. And, you know, your brain is actually going to keep more the more you interact with, with children. And then does that stay, does that like um, balance out at some point for most children where they get enough? And does that early childhood development of that part of your brain stay with you until you're old? And do you think it behooves people who have had more stimulus when they were little as adults? That's a great question. I think that um, there's probably, and I don't, I don't know the literature on this, but I'm guessing there's a very weak correlation between sort of what happens to you as a child and how you end up as an adult. A lot of stuff happens. Neurobiologically. Between. Neurobiologically, as well as like life stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's stronger evidence psychologically on what happens to you when you're young affects you in adulthood. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, exactly. From the psychological standpoint, we kind of maybe have something of a better understanding than we necessarily do of sort of the neurobiological standpoint that you can look mm -hmm. at sort of like, you know, it, but see, and that's it. Your brain does keep growing and it does make new neurons in parts of the brain. The parts that are involved in sort of learning and memory throughout your life. So, neuroplasticity, right? That's what the definition exactly. of neuroplasticity. Which exactly. means you and just, you as you learn new things, your brain creates new synapses. Yeah, it makes new connections. And even though you may have sort of a semi-finite number of cells in parts of your brain, that doesn't mean those cells can't change the way they talk to each other. You know, to your point, why what we understand about brain development in the child is only weakly sort of correlated with what we see as an adult. Mm -hmm. you know? We know yeah. that the children who are more engaged before they start attending school, tend to do better in school. And then doing better in school is associated with doing better in school. And it's associated with other sorts of skills and reinforcers that appear you know, throughout your life. So, mm -hmm. and I think where we see sort of the, the strongest correlations would be in cases of sort of the most severe neglect, mm. right? That we know that there are like windows, you know, that if interaction, it develop, if we miss these developmental windows, then parts of the brain get pruned away that maybe don't come back. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we might yeah. miss language and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's true. I've seen some heartbreaking instances of that. Oh yeah, I I try not to learn about that stuff. It's a little hard, right? It is. Yeah. My heart can't take it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just I just can't. I can't yeah. with that. 
understand. I understand. <laughs> I think it's good to educate yourself, but marinating in it sometimes if you're a sensitive being, yes. it can be really, really challenging. There are two yeah. things, Dr. Thayer, that, I, that keep coming to mind that just are so fascinating to me from your class that I really want to kind of explore. One is long-term potentiation. And I think that fits in very well to what we're talking about right now. And the other is just the simple threshold of excitation and why, what gets it to that negative 40 mark. And, and you know, the the concept of consciousness and the fact that we haven't really agreed on a definition of it and just the mystery of the brain. Because there's, I mean, I know very little about neurobiology now taking Dr. Thayer's class, a lot more than I did when I first started. <laughs> but it's literally like infancy of, you know, neuroanatomy and the basics, 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 whereas Dr. Thayer yeah. obviously is way more well-versed. But even, even with that said, we've had really wonderful post-lecture conversations about the mystery and what we don't know and where we, where we can go once we do start to figure these things out. And so I, I'm, I just love the mystery of, of the things we don't know about the brain and what the potential that those things hold. So can we start with long-term potentiation? Can you explain what that is? Sure. So LTP really, from sort of a, a student standpoint, probably a good way to think about it is um, the way that memories get encoded into your brain right? So when you wake up tomorrow, you're going to be thinking about, oh, that podcast was so fabulous. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. um, so when you have a memory, what is that, right? Like how do we, what is a memory exactly? And what we think is, is that there are changes in the ways that neurons, the cells of the brain, the way they communicate with each other, right? So when you think about it, <laughs> you know, and, and my example is, is one of my best friends, um, I've known her since I was 17 and we had, we had some wild times, man. Um, yeah, we, a lot of wild times. And so there are jokes that we have, like these inside jokes, right? One of which is fawn eye. <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you what it means. <laughs> she knows. Maybe if she listens she knows. to this, she's going to be like. Exactly. I'm going to be like, Suze, you got to listen to this because, you know, then, you know, there, there's, <laughs> there's, there's a couple of these inside jokes, right? One of which is fawn eye. Another one is my father was a jockey. So, um, <laughs> like there's just these things that all I have to say is fawn eye. I, and she will literally fall over laughing, right? Because we share that memory and we have this like really hypersensitive communication, right? Mm -hmm. That's what happens in your brain, right? We think that that's what makes a memory in your brain. It's like this hypersensitive communication, right? That neurons get used to being activated in a certain pattern, like neuron A, neuron B, neuron D, right? And maybe A, B, D represents your, you know, birthday party, right? Or in my case, P, Q, S, neurons P talking to Q, talking to S, maybe that represents the whole fawn eye scenario thing that you just have to know. Oh, there's so many good ones we have, pub. You just, you can't even know. Anyway, um, so when neurons get activated in certain patterns, we think that that's maybe what represents a memory, right? And then mm -hmm. you could take, you know, three neurons, P, Q, and R, and maybe if you activate them P, Q, R, that's one memory. And maybe if you activate them as R, P, Q, that's a different memory, right? So you can see that by having all these neurons with, you know, 100 trillion connections, you can record so much information, right? Yes. And then and then also in the creation process of that. So there's like that, the memory has to be encoded, right? It has to be, it has to be done over a, a period of time to where it, it means something. And then the, the amygdala, did the amygdala take it? And no. Who, who hippocampus. The hippocampus. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been summer break for a minute now. I wish we would have recorded this right after I got out of her class. I would have been sharper. <laughs> yeah, it's summer, <laughs> no judgment. The hippocampus takes that and it, it, it turns it to long-term memory and then it's stored elsewhere. It's stored up in that cortex, that outer in your portion. cortex. Right. right. Exactly. So, the hippocampus but, is what drives the two neurons to talk to each other. Right. And so when we're actively creating a new habit, for example, we're just kind of doing that neurons that, that fire together, wire together. So you're, you're firing that same set of neurons, that QPR, over and over and over, and it actually strengthens that circuit, correct? Yeah, with, exactly. With added, it uses extra calcium, and then it just kind of creates this feedback loop in itself where it strengthens that connection. And, yeah. and so, and we see that in addiction as well, correct? Mm -hmm. I think that habits are interesting, um, because other parts of the brain are involved as well, 
It's not necessary. It's not just the memory portion, Mm -hmm. but there's a feedback loop between your prefrontal cortex and other parts of your brain, including a region called the caudate nucleus. Mm -hmm. And we know that these two guys talk to each other. And the caudate is part of the the group of of subcortical structures in your brain that are involved in movement. So, I mean, here's the thing. And this one, actually, this one's for you, Suzanne, too, just in case you're listening to this one. Um, It's easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking than it is to think yourself into a new way of acting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That if you mm-hmm. want something to be different, if you want something to change, do something different. It's a lot easier to change the thinking if you have a new action than it is to try and think your way into a new way of acting. This is a bi-directional relationship between your brain and your body, and that's really hard to sort of grasp, right? That mm-hmm. it's easy to think about your brain determines what happens in your body, right? We tend to think of that as a unidirectional flow of information, right? right. From the brain to the movement or to the body. And the truth is, is that the body gives the brain feedback. So here's, here's my example. Um, have you ever done hot yoga? Yes. Okay. So do you know you never have to open your mouth when you breathe? Have you, (laughs) you can do an entire 90 minute hot yoga class, only breathing through your nose. That would be very challenging. It is. But here's the thing. When you start, when you open your mouth and start <gasps> sucking in air, right? Because you think that you are doing all these hard physical activities and your heart is, is pounding, right? And you're thinking, no, oh, I'm short of breath. I need to, <sighs> basically what you're doing when you start breathing through your mouth like that is you're allowing your sympathetic nervous system to take over. And your sympathetic nervous system says, oh my God, we need more air, right? And so the increased respiration, right? And that's sending feedback to your brain that you're not getting enough air. <laughs> and that's why breath work is so amazing. That's why breath work is so amazing. If you can force yourself to keep your mouth closed, right? Keep breathing through your nose, right? Smooth breathing is smooth yoga. At this point, at that point, you can keep your sympathetic nervous system. That's your fight or flight stuff, right? If you can keep that offline, right? Mm-hmm. You get sort of that benefit of exercise without the tension, right? Without that sort of fear-based reaction. How do you do that? Well, you keep your mouth shut. That's an action. By mm-hmm. forcing yourself to keep breathing through your nose, right? You tell your brain, yeah, no, we got this. We're fine. There's no panic. Gosh, we are such complex, amazing, interesting species. And the lack of knowledge about self, I can only speak for myself, but I think it's pretty widespread. When I started studying nutrition, I remember learning stuff and being like, oh my God, my body is amazing. Right? Like, if, if more people knew what was happening when they ate a freaking cracker, I think they would be like, they would treat themselves better. You know what I mean? If you knew how efficient your body was being and where it was sending things and how it was utilizing whatever you put in your mouth to yeah. the best of its abilities, you would want to give it better things to be able to fuel yourself, you know? And it's the Absolutely. same learning neuroanatomy and neurobiology. I think the more we learn about ourselves, the easier it is to be fascinated with ourselves and be curious yeah. about ourselves. And Just kind the of interest different. is like, are you kidding? It really works like that? I mean, that's how I felt like when I learned about reproduction, you're not told any of this stuff. As women, we have no idea. Like you get your period every month. Here's your tampon. Here's your pad, blah, blah, blah. You yeah. have no idea why this is happening. Oh, it's puberty. Okay, but what does that mean? You know, and looking at sort of how the signaling shifts and the fact that, oh my God, this kills me. We still don't know why, you know, when the the estrogen switches to a positive feedback mechanism and starts driving the sort of accumulation of of the endometrial lining, we don't know why that happens. We still got no answer. No. Really? (laughs) I think think we don't study this stuff because there's not, I mean, I could be wrong. This could be very biased, but I think that there's not a lot of interest in the female's body when it comes to pharmacology. And I don't think general. you're wrong. Yeah. I know. I read a study that there, like a lot of drugs are not tested on fertile women. They'll, they'll yeah. test drugs on menopausal women because we have so many more hormones going on in our systems. We'll be a higher risk at causing issues in the FDA's process yeah. of approving drugs. Yeah. And as a result, most of the dosages are wrong for women. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you take a creature with a different metabolic uh, composition in their body. They have more body fat, less body muscle, smaller body size, different concentrations of enzymes. Oh, let's just give them the same drug. It doesn't matter. They're just women, right? <laughs> Dr. Thayer is putting chopstick on right now as she said that. And it was just such a moment. Yeah, I'm, it's so I, true. Sorry, that, that was pretty heavy in the snark. I can't help myself, though. <laughs> you don't have to apologize. I think it's appropriate snark. I read this book called In In the Flow, and that book blew my mind about the female system and what is happening during those phases and what you can do to support yourself during those different phases like mm. with food or activity. There was so much in that book that I read that I went, why did no one teach me this? Yeah. You know, when I asked my mom, she's like, I didn't know that. No, nobody taught me that, you know? So you're no, like, exactly. oh, gosh. And, and that's assuming your mom can talk to you about that stuff at all, you know? 
Right. There's that whole right. thing as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was such a, you know, we've been convinced that how our bodies do things is somehow or another shameful, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. But again, like the more you learn about your body, the more you realize like, oh, you, you, it changes your perspective because you realize, oh, no, I'm just a human. Yeah. And this is a human thing happening. And then when you learn about the complexities and how awesome it is, like when they learned about the kinesins, is that what they are? Wait, what oh, yeah. That? The kinesin proteins. Yeah. I think everybody should Google them. They are adorable. <laughs> are they cute? <laughs> like literally, I was in cute. her class and she showed a, a, like a video on the on the big screen of them. And they look like these little, one of them look like they have little feet that walk down the axon in the brain. And then the other one looks like a drunken like chicken leg. And he just like hobbles down the <laughs> axon of the neuron. It's so cute. I was like, I literally said out loud in the class, like, oh my God. We are adorable, all of us. Like, look what's happening in our systems. <laughs> so I think you know, it's easier to be nice to yourself when you know more about your body. Like, then, then the little like blemish on your cheek or the like yeah. cellulite you're like obsessing over, you can be like, no, actually, the body's fucking amazing. Like, I can yeah. give it a little grace, you know? It's- I made a person. Yeah, that's next level. That's next right. level. Yeah. There's a new person yeah. on the planet, and I did that. You did it. So I had a little, it only took about three minutes, but <clears throat> that's another story. So, <laughs> just saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I got this really, there's this really cool human that I had like this super interesting connection with, you know? Yeah. Like, how does, yeah. how does that even happen? And I feel like, boy, I mean, I hope that at the end of the day, when students finish my class, they walk out with that sense of awe, you know? That, I know that, I did. Uh, all of this exists and it can do all of these things. And it's just mind boggling. You know, I was reading this interesting article the other day. What was it? It was, um, Oh, they found this new region in the brain um, that they think, <laughs> uh, I, I found this on a- uh, NPR. It was having an out of body experience. Blame this sausage shaped piece of your brain. <laughs> okay. Right. So they've got people who are working on identifying parts of the brain that allow us to have out of body experiences. What? Wow. It was funny. I read this article just on a few days after um, I was having this conversation with my husband's nephew about a, a couple of out-of-body out of experiences that he'd had. Ooh. And I thought that was really sort of interesting um, just because it suggests that, you know, this, this little piece of your brain may be more active or connected differently in different people. So maybe it facilitates out-of-body experiences more often or more frequently in some people other than others, you know? Interesting. I think kind of stories are super fascinating. Right? Like, I don't even... And then they, like, know all this stuff that was happening. They they knew who the people were that were working on them to resuscitate and all this stuff. That's pretty fascinating. And that leads me to think about, like, consciousness, you know? Yeah. That that is, like, what is it? Because we can't agree. It's, you know, the the definition of it, you know, if you look it up, is being awake. Right? But like, yeah. but that's I, pretty weak. Yeah, it, it yeah. <laughs> so, from your perspective, what you know, what are your thoughts and feelings on on, on consciousness? That's that's a good question, and I think it's something that we need to sort of identify and come to an agreement about as um, we start uh, experimenting more and more with AI and artificial intelligence-based systems. Mm-hmm. Um, until we have a reasonable definition of what constitutes consciousness, how do you know that that intelligence is artificial? yeah <laughs> right ah uh, yeah mm-hmm. I don't know that whole the whole AI thing just makes me anxious so I try to tune as much of that out as I possibly can because mm-hmm. I just don't think we're we're where the technology has gone is way beyond what we're equipped with morally and philosophically to sort of deal with in my opinion so yeah, I think we have some real human issues that we got to get worked through to where we could utilize yeah. that for the good of all and I don't think we're there yeah. yet I mean we're still no. at war we, yeah. we just, I mean, it's 2023. We went into hand-to-hand combat on this planet. I mean, it has yeah. never stopped. It's like, that's, yeah, we're not. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's kind of terrifying. So I don't know, I guess consciousness has to do with, with, I don't know. Cause, cause like, I mean, okay. What about when you're sleeping? You're, you're, that's, that's my first question. What about when you're sleeping? If, if, if the definition is being awake, consciousness is being, just being awake, then what's happening when you're sleeping? Cause you're, reco- you, that's happening. Right. What is that like, then? And if if you're asleep and I walk into your room and I say, Issa, Issa, you'll wake up. So you can't be unconscious because you are still monitoring the environment. Mm -hmm. So, but what about something like locked in syndrome, you know, where people have consciousness, but they can't respond. Mm -hmm. That makes me think of my my friend, Kieran. He was in a coma and he could hear everything and track everything that was going on, but couldn't respond. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, there's just... Okay, so what do I think consciousness is? Um, I know that consciousness is related to language and communication in some way. 
and and I think that that what I think there are different kinds of consciousness. I think that my dog was clearly conscious. Um, like you would never think that oh your dog is not conscious because that because he's sort of aware and responding to stimuli. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't think his consciousness was quite like mine. I think it was a little different, and I think that difference has to do with language. I think animals have varying kinds of consciousness. I guess maybe I mean if if I had to say levels or steps you know because i don't think and and i think as humans we're really arrogant and we think that we're at the top level and i think we're wrong i don't think we are i i would agree with that statement i think varying degrees of consciousness happens in animals and in in humans within species i think there's yeah. varying degrees of consciousness but where where do you make the distinction between perception and consciousness how do you relate mm. those two i think that you know, perception at its maybe most fundamental is sort of the ability to identify stimuli in your external environment, right? So perception becomes a tool to feed consciousness about what's happening in the, excuse me, in the exterior environment. But that, yeah, that's, yes, I agree. And then you have that, uh, we also are amazing because we have the ability to pull our perspectives back and, and make up the story that we want to believe around what is happening. Right. And this is sort of that weird that so we were talking about sort of that bidirectional thing between your physiology and your brain and about, you know, using feedback from your body to your brain as well as from your brain to your body and and respecting that. And I think that's the other thing, too, is that we know, let's see, Mike Gazaniga, um, he's at UCSB now, has done a, a lot of work around what he calls the interpreter. Right. And the Mm. interpreter is closely related to the language generative portion of your brain and that it makes up the stories. It runs the narrative of your day. It runs the narrative of your life. You know, that part of your brain that says, oh, my God. Oh, shoot. I forgot to write down birdseed. I got to get birdseed. This is really important. What is that? What makes my brain do that? Right. Yeah, And the fact that if you can hear that, then you're not that. If you hear that voice saying that, someone's listening to that. So you're that thing behind that thing. <laughs> right. I am both things. How can that be? Right? The fact right. that we exist sort of in both of those formats. I actually really do have to get birdseed, by the way. <laughs> right. I'm going to write that down. Birdseed. I know. Isn't that crazy? Um, so you have like this weird little narrative mechanism. And Gazanaga calls it the interpreter. And it's generative, but it's also receptive. It's the part of your brain that makes up the stories and the reasoning and the rationale for why we do the things that we do. It helps drive that sort of understanding of our emotional state, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of those things that distinguishes our consciousness from that of what we call lower, and I, here's my air quotes again, lower animals, you know, like dogs and cats and things like that. Um, but that being said, I do think, okay, and this is this is pretty far out there and I might get fired for admitting to this, but I think plants have some sort of consciousness as well. Oh, I, yeah. I, Right? Like, I don't think yeah. that they're not receptive to perceptual changes, to changes in their environment. You know, they are. They clearly are. So there's they some are. form of consciousness there. You know, this idea that I, I don't think it ends with us. I think there are other forms of consciousness beyond ours as well. Spectrum. I would agree. And I think that our willingness to, to open that up and then to try and bridge that gap of science to spirituality, consciousness, I think, is the perfect entry point because, you know, we haven't agreed yeah. on it. For all we know, there could be a collective consciousness. We all could be connected to some server in the sky, you know, or <laughs> this all could that. be, you know, it could be some some thread that we're just tuned off of. We, we really don't have that. But if we can start to explore that, it's just really hard to quantify. Yeah. It's really hard to 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 bring that down and ground it out and try and test models against it. And and that's that's part of what I love about the mystery of it, but it's also really frustrating to me because it can't be quantified. And then you get this woo-woo information that pushes people to do weird things that are not really based in any truth or yeah. substance and and get really wigged out or, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of a hard, you know, I love it. And I think I, I, I do believe there's a lot of power and a lot of medicine, and a lot of healing in perspective and consciousness shifts and the potential for changing the world. We ought to all get on board with something. And that I mean, I grew up in the Native American church where there were, you know, prayer ceremonies and teepees and you would sit in a circle and there is a common intention and there is a, a plant-based medicine involved. And there is, there, there has been amazing things that I've seen in my life and miracle stories, you know, like that are unfathomable where there's no explanation to how that happened, you know? So I think I do believe, I, I can wholeheartedly say, I do believe there's something working that we're not aware of that we have the ability to tune into and utilize for good. 
Oh, yeah. And, and that's even Stephen Hawking said at the end of it, we're probably going to go, yeah, God. It's God. I know. <laughs> like whatever, however we might come to understand God and all the different routes there are to come to understand God. Even When Stephen Hawking, who is arguably one of the greatest scientific minds of any time, especially our time, says, yeah, at the end, we're probably going to go God, you know, eh, that gives you some some hope that, you know, spiritual pursuits aren't maybe as woo woo as, as we might think they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and because how does consciousness fit into spirituality, and what is the role of belief and belief systems, and all and those? Those are so powerful. Oh my gosh! Oh my those gosh! Run your life. I will speak firsthand. Like that's like I realized certain ones. I've just been running the show. I have been backseat, and they have been driving. Oh, it's not interesting. Yeah, you're like, oh, geez, okay, you know. Well, <laughs> I mean, look at what happened with January sixth. You know. Yeah. You know the good power of yeah. belief systems. I mean, that was just stunning to me. And it's been so intriguing to me to watch sort of how belief systems change our consciousness, you know, and what they do that in ways that, that do and do not serve us. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. Why would we adopt a set of beliefs that doesn't serve us? Well, coping. I think we do things out of coping at a certain point in time, and then our systems relate to that thing and go, oh, this helped us get through this. And so we keep running that program thinking it's going to be, it's the only way to get through it. And you see it in trauma a lot, you know, like, oh, I react this way because I thought it was unsafe to be loved, for example, you know, like when there was love involved, I was abused. So I learned like that it's unsafe to be loved. And then you get into a healthy relationship and you start to feel love and you're going, this is unsafe. And you push that person away and you're sabotaging yourself, but it's just based off of your coping mechanism and what, what you believed as a younger brain was the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the truth at that time. Mm -hmm. But then how do you, how do you change that? How do you update that file? You know, that that was true yeah. then, but it is not true now. And know? that's conscious, like being consciously aware. Sometimes I think like, like a lot of the old sages say, like, there's nothing to do. You just bring it up and look at it. And then yeah. you go, oh, that's that. And then, and then that's enough. Just, just being simply consciously aware that that was a program you were running can be enough yeah. to catch yourself and change it. But sometimes it's deeper, I think, too. Yeah. And I mean, that's a really good question is, I mean, ultimately that's kind of what you're exploring here is how do we produce change? How do we create change? And, you know, and, and they're, they're all small ways, you know, which I think is really interesting, you know, that it's small things that create big change consistently. At least that's what I've observed, you know. I, I would 100% agree. I don't think it's ever this big wave. I think it's tiny, tiny, tiny steps, baby yeah. steps. And then eventually the thing starts to turn. Yeah. And it's repeated effort too. And that's sort of that motivational component, you know, is effort, Mm -hmm. reward, effort, reward until you start to generate that sort of behavior independently. Yeah. (laughs) What would you say, what are you most intrigued about when it comes to change in in humans? I'm curious about why we psychologically resist change. So here's the thing. Um, I see this as particularly problematic. So many of us are resistant to change. We don't want to do anything different. Even though when the thing that we're doing isn't necessarily working for us, we're still afraid of change. And we perceive change as negative. And we see, you know, that a lot of us see that whatever is sort of currently happening for us, um, even if it's bad, it's better than the unknown, right? And what I find really intriguing about that is that the human body is designed as a change system. Your sensory systems are change detectors. Their whole purpose is to detect change in the environment. For example, I mean, imagine the first time you started wearing your ring, right? And you noticed it and you could feel it and you were aware of it for a while. And then after probably a couple hours, you stopped noticing it, right? And every so often your attention would go back to it. Oh yeah, is it still there? Right? Until eventually you stop being aware of it almost entirely. Mm-hmm. Because literally the receptors in your skin begin to adapt to the presence of that object. It's like, well, this isn't anything new, so we can stop sending signals to the brain. Same thing is true with your eyes, right? Same thing is true with your nose. You know, when you go into like the monkey house at the zoo and you're like, I'm going to die, right? It smells so bad. I'm probably going to die. And then after a little while, you're like, what smell? Mm -hmm. Because the olfactory receptors in your nose adapt to the presence of those molecules and it stops sending signals to your brain. It tells your brain there's nothing to worry about here. We're not not even going to bother sending this on because it's irrelevant. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so if your body is designed to detect change, why do we resist it so much? Why are we so entrenched in repeating the same behaviors and the same attitudes, you know? When our bodies literally thrive off of change, that's our whole purpose is to detect change in the environment. But we're also such 
we're so efficient with our energy though. You know, like all of our systems are so efficient at running our energy. And sometimes do you think it's just a energetic thing that it would cost energy to change and our body does like maintain that energy, don't spend it? Maybe. And maybe that's it. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's just sort of evolutionary conservation of energy. I don't know, but I would like to know, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and like, uh, because there's, there's sort of the psychological thing that why do we fear the unknown so much, you know, evolution, but evolution. also just, and, and the, the, the misnomers in that there are people that are really good at change. The people that do have those fears, but consistently work through them and out of their comfort zones. Do you know anybody that comes to mind when you think about someone who's good at change, quote unquote? You know, um, that's interesting. Because I don't, I don't know what, what do you think it would mean to be good at change? For me, when I asked you that question, the first thing that kind of popped into my mind was people who are more accepting, I think, just of what is, as opposed to trying to change or control outcomes seem to have more ease around change. I don't know if it's easier for them, but maybe they have more ease. Oh, I like how you said that. The person that popped into my head was my Advent dissertation advisor, um, Aaron Ettenberg, um, because he was somebody that he had a lot of confidence and, um, and a good deal of self-esteem. And so I didn't perceive him as being um, afraid. Do you know what I mean? Things would change and he would do different things and he'd be like, hmm, I think I'm going to try this, you know? Oh, I think I might like to do that, you know? Well, we'll see what happens. I remember him just saying that a lot. Well, we'll see what happens. Well, we'll see what happens. And I thought, and, and so part of it is that acceptance, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that knowing that no matter what the outcome was, he was going to be okay. Wasn't This wasn't life-threatening. This wasn't, you know, and maybe that's part of one of the other components is, is being able to sort of recognize how much of this is really life-threatening or how much of it is just like, I'll figure out something else after, you know? Yeah. It's that saber-toothed tiger thing. Like we don't have the same threats we used to have. So now right. the little things feel like big things, but the people that can yeah. have the perspective enough to know they're going to be okay regardless yeah. so I guess it's that that self-assurance that you're gonna you're gonna survive yeah and some of it is is re- yeah downscaling the fear you know that maybe I don't really need to be that afraid of this and it was you know what we talked about earlier about fear of failure you know what I mean failure doesn't really mean that much most of the time it just means you have to try again or try something different but it's really not the end of the world if you try it and you fail then what happens most of the time nothing <laughs> yeah like tears on the floor that's yeah. what happens and then you cry you're sad and then, I mean, having the security that, that your emotions aren't going to overtake you, that's, a, you know, that goes back to mental health of like, sometimes failure really does take such a strong emotional hold that it feels the emotional feelings of the failure are what are, are really a challenge to move through more so than the conceptual, okay, I can build my business, I'll make the money again, whatever the, the scenario, the emotions of it can be the, the hard one. But that's like having that emotional strength. I don't know if that's the right word, but to self-regulation. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to know, like, I'm going to be able to be okay emotionally. I do that meditation sometimes where I just put my hand on my heart and I take deep breaths and I just say, I'm okay no matter what happens. Everyone is okay no matter what happens. Because it's, you know, sometimes my mind tells me that I'm not, I'm not going to be okay or something awful is going to happen. And it's like, well, I don't have control over that. You know, but that feels like a real sort of, you know, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy type thing. You know what I mean? To walk through the fear. What really happens at the end, you know? Mm -hmm. So when I was, I guess, how old was I? 32, 33? Sorry. Yeah, I was around there when I moved to Santa Barbara. So I was a single mom. My son was three and a half. And I'd been accepted to UCSB and I was signing up for the family student housing and they had sort of these these two different <laughs> these two different kind of apartments you could sign up for, and one was a little bit newer, a little bit nicer, a little bit more expensive, and the other was a little bit older, a little, little less expensive. And, and I called my mom and I'm like, you know, I'm not sure which apartment to sign up for. Like, I just don't know. And she goes, Well, how are you going to support yourself? And I said, I don't know. I just think it'll work out. She was real quiet for a minute, and she goes, Well, then pick the more expensive one. <laughs> and I and I think back on that, and I think, How on earth did I do that? How did I pack up my kid and move just the two of us? 300 miles away from anybody. I knew no one here and I was going to go to school and I was going to do this thing and I was going to figure it all out. And I was thinking, why wasn't I afraid? I was thinking, oh, I was scared. Less. <laughs> you know? But I also knew that at the end of it, what was the worst that could happen? I'd move back. So I move and I fail. Okay. And then what? I go back to Santa Cruz where my friends and family are and 
get a job and do what I was doing before. How is it that bad? Like I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't see anything at the end of it that was that horrible, you know, that it was going to make me any worse than I was where I started. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, like not having anything to lose is a really yeah. wonderful place to start. And, and, and that can be, that can work out of your favor as well. When you have a lot going, that's good, but you feel that pull to something different or something more or something yeah. different, just bigger, whatever it may be. Yeah. That can be hard to let go of what you have in faith oh. that thing yeah. else is going to come. That's so funny that you said that. I was that faith was the word that popped into my head. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Is being willing to take that journey and just know that at the end, you know, it's all going to be okay. And that's that sort of self esteem and, you know, I don't being willing to fail. You know? Yeah, and the resilience of it for sure. Wait, yeah. resilience is such an interesting topic. So I ended up teaching a class in positive psychology a couple of times, and that was one of the the topics within that. Was we talked about resilience and grit and factors that confer that, and you know, it's really interesting. Like there's a whole field of research in in grit and resilience. The first psychology class I ever took was a positive psychology class and I loved it. What did you love about it? So the book, I've still been trying to find the book that we worked out of. I found it on Amazon and I thought I bought it, but I actually rented it on accident and then I had to return (laughs) it. And I was so sad sending that book back to the post office. I was like begrudgingly putting it in a thing. Like I have to send this book back. I need to just find it and buy it again. But we worked through this book and we applied everything to our own lives. Nice. And so the application to your own life and then at the end, your your final was just a, a paper where you went through chapter by chapter and you pulled out like what you had learned from that chapter and how it applied to your life. And then you wrote an entire letter to yourself uh, based off of what you had like observed about the different areas of your life or people that you knew in your life or whatnot. And yeah. it was just a really profound way to to learn because it was so applicable like every step of the way. And And just the, you know, I've always been intrigued with the fact that we have some agency over our own experience. And, and that class really showed me that, that there is that feedback loop. And then I think there's so much that's up to mystery and there's so much that's just, you know, life, but that you can have that hula hoop and you can be in it and you can have agency over everything that's in it, you know, that's in the really hula hoop. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's a great analogy. Yeah. 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 Positive psych is super interesting. Just the fact that there's this whole sort of, so much of psychology is always focused on what's negative and what's wrong and all the disorders and, you know, blah, 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 and, you know, repressed things and you want to sleep with your father and I don't know what all. <laughs> yeah, <that's such> a- <laughs> Yeah. It was, you know, and that's always kind of, for me, been kind of a turnoff. Like, I just doesn't, like, uh, it just doesn't do it for me, you know. But finding yeah. positive psychology and realize there's a whole field that studies about, you know, what's right with the human condition, you know. Mm-hmm. What confers resilience? How, you know, what does grief look like, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, actually, this is really reaching way back. I actually took a class in Death and Dying, actually, with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who put the whole, the five stages of grief and all that kind of stuff. And really, that was 180 years ago. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was still teaching. But just looking at sort of like it's easy to pathologize grief and grieving, right? And that if you don't, if you're not completely devastated by the loss of someone, that somehow there's something wrong with you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And sort of how we, you know, allowing for that variability in grief and how we express grief and how we experience grief without pathologizing it, without making that be something wrong with us, you know, because it happened like this for me. Yeah, but every every grief is so different and every unique human is so different and every unique relationship is so different. So the grief is never going to be the same. Right. You know, that, that your relationship with that person will dictate your grief with that person. Well, and maybe that's one of my sort of ongoing issues, maybe with psychology in general, is that we assume then that if someone isn't, you know, prostate with grief, then the, then they are then they're repressing it, right? And they need to be in therapy because, you know, that, that we, we tend to pathologize these things when, if we're, when maybe we're just not accounting for the breadth of the human experience, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of those reasons where I just, you know, I've always kind of stayed away from psychology. And I mean, and because of that, because there's, there's such a wide spectrum of how people respond. So yeah, yeah. There's a lot less, I think a lot less pathology than, than we think there is, you know? Yeah. And psychology is it's so good about categorizing. And the human brain likes to do it. You know, the human brain likes to make meaning and reason and categories (laughs) and it likes that. So it's like, I get it. I get it. But we're not that we don't fit in boxes like that. There there isn't one size fits all therapeutic thing that's going to help you, everybody get through it. And it's, you know, same for change. There's not one recipe that's going to, you know, I can't sit here and be like, let's find the one thing that's going to change everything. No, it it doesn't work like that. That's the effect of the whole thing. You know what I mean? Is that you take these incremental steps to change and that really I mean a person can choose to embrace change you know and and because there are pieces of me that I to be honest I like change I like it a lot you know mm-hmm. like, it's like a cheap thrill like I hate to admit it but there it is <laughs> you know? 
And one of the things I love about being in academia is the variability that I get, you know, Mm -hmm. because every semester there's something new. I have a new schedule. I have a new class. I have new students. I can, you know, try this. I can try that, you know, and doing all of this from a fairly sort of, you know, safe and relatively um, consistent sort of center. Maybe that's kind of the question is, is how do we balance those things, you know, that, you know, that that origin point that is safe and centered to be able yeah. to go off from and come back. Like you've, you've mentioned a few times where you had that stability in yourself to go, well, I just know it's, I'm going to be all right. I can come back to where I am and right here is okay. So no yeah. matter how far out I go, I know I can come back. And, and that stability is really, I think, an important piece of change too, because yes, change, we think of it as like fluidity of like moving through something to something else, but there also is an element of it. Like where you start from is a pushing off point. And, and there, yeah. there's always, you're, you keep moving that tab of that pushing off point to different places, but you yourself are that stable point that will go into those different facets. So that's interesting to, to, to explore the stability of change. Like yeah. some, some part of it that's like, you got to have your stable feet to be able to go, okay, now I'm going to jump. Yeah. You can't, and it you is, know, jumping from your knees is a hard thing. Yeah. It's so much easier to embrace change when you know that you can count on this or that, or these pieces are consistent, you know, whether you find that consistency within yourself, within your, you know, your spiritual religious practices, or, you know, some sort of, you know, something like that, that can be really grounding and orienting, but, but always, you know, having sort of both. And I guess maybe, I don't know, I mean, the older I get, the more I think everything is a paradox. Like it's so much easier. I can embrace change because I have consistency, hmm. you know, that I can't, mm-hmm. it's, it's always both. Even what you were talking about, you know, we love to categorize things, right? We can put our brains in category. Our brains love things to be yes, no, off, on, right, left. I mean, brains just really like to do that. Mine, yours, you know, mm-hmm. like me, not like me. And when you when you start to look at sort of how brains kind of do these things, our minds do these sorts of things, how we organize things, it really starts to explain sort of a lot of the, the tensions that we experience, you know? And then mm-hmm. when you start, right? Like, I mean, when we see things as not like me, I wouldn't go there because those people aren't like me. How are they not like you? You know, and what you're talking about about opening up that spectrum and starting to see, okay, so whatever their skin color is different, for example, right? Mm-hmm. But what else is different? They they still have the same number of arms and legs and eyes, and most of them have you know a single spouse or maybe no spouse, and they might have some kids or maybe not, and they probably live in a dwelling like yours, and you know they have food like yours sort of, and if you start to to really force your brain to think outside those boxes, literally how alike are we really? And it's easier, I think, to embrace those sorts of things when you have sort of that groundedness. Mm -hmm. How have you nurtured and facilitated that groundedness in yourself? That's a big question. Therapy. I know, right? I agree. Therapy. I, I can, I'll definitely do a PSA for, for therapy. I think that oh, is yeah. so Plug valuable. therapy here. You know, it's yeah. just, it's such a great experience to um, have somebody who's really, their only interest is you. You know what I mean? So their suggestions, advice, um, insights comes through their filter, but it's really focused on what you might do for yourself or what I might do for myself mm-hmm. as far as sort of change. I think that intention is one piece and practice is another piece. And we talked about that. And then you fail, right? And then you're a puddle on the floor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you try again. You know what I mean? Um, I, I let's, let's put it this way. So I like to date men and a number of my relationships with men, uh, my 20s, uh, were not productive and healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were not. A lot of us have that same story. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. You know, it's kind of what you do in your 20s. You kind of sort those things out. And, you know, through the process of therapy, you know, I, I learned a lot about insights. And I, I had a therapist who would suggest different things to me. Why don't you try this? Why don't you think about it this way? Why don't you take these sorts of actions? Why don't you write about this? So there's lots of ways to sort of engage with that stuff. And I mean, it wasn't like I went to therapy five times and the next guy I dated was Mr. Wonderful, you know, oh, you know, didn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. Nope, nope. Gosh, fact, wouldn't that be nice? We could just take a pill and then it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. It took a long time for me to learn that um, that feeling that I got when I saw a guy, that didn't mean approach. It meant run. Run far, oh, run fast. That's <laughs> tough when you can't trust your own internal guidance system because it's skewed for some whatever reason. You know, I know I have friends who are like, I, I will beeline for the narcissist in the room. <laughs> like, you know, you're like, why? Like, my body why? tells me yes, you know, and then it's like, oh. And, and maybe that's it. Maybe we can use relationships as an opportunity to practice differently, you know? I would agree with that. I think that in my life, relationships have been an awesome opportunity to see myself better and to practice 
myself better, like to, to really yes. step up to the plate, to grab that stuff from therapy, to grab that stuff from my 12-step programs to and actually utilize it and put it into practice with those vulnerable interpersonal relationships. I think there's a lot of opportunity in that, but there has to be some type of joy in it as well, or else it's just like you're just working all day. You know? yeah. I have I have a funny story though, and in, in, in this in this sort of idea of change, a number of years ago, before I met my husband, I was dating a little bit. I met this guy. You know, I thought, well, you're kind of interesting. I thought, well, I'll hang out with you. And it was really interesting. I think he thought I was going to be a person who was going to, you know, do things for him in that sort of toxic relationship way, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because I felt distinctly outside of the whole process. And I remember thinking, you read me wrong. I'm not that woman anymore. You know, and he kept trying to push me and to get me to do stuff and to fall into this really sort of toxic, you know, I'm the caretaker kind of thing. And I was just like, yeah, you you misread me. You know, we hang out for a couple of weeks and I'm like, yeah, bye, good luck. So back to the idea that changes what you do, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm going to let go of this. I don't want to be in those kinds of relationships anymore. Not healthy for me. Yeah. And it takes that, it takes that time to be able to, to feel out the difference of those things. And then just once it gets clear, it's clear. And you're like, oh no, I don't, I'm choosing not to do that anymore. That's not part of my identity anymore. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to engage with that. That's not yes. where I'm at. You know, it's like, oh, and then it's simple. Whereas, you know, rewind a year and it, you're in the turmoil and there's nothing simple about it. So no. it, it, does, it is that big yeah. it takes practice. Well, and being willing, you know, you talked mm-hmm. about acceptance and that's part of it, you know, in terms of sort of like embracing change, but also sort of being willing to see what happens on the other side. If I do something different than what happens, you know. And the curiosity, like I think curiosity is such a big part of that. Is, right? Yeah. When you're curious, it's really hard to be stressed. You know, it's like having that just curiosity turned on and, and yeah. try and see what can happen. It just opens you to a different experience of whatever yeah. the change you're going through is going to be. That openness, I think, is just so important and being willing to sort of see what happens on the other side. It's fun, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be. It can be. I'm going to go with yes. You know, that even when it's disastrous at the end, it's still amazing. And the thing is, like, when you start doing things differently, you rewire your brain. Mm-hmm. That's like, I mean, if there's like, it's that bi-directional relationship. I mean, we think it comes from our brain to our bodies, but our bodies are providing feedback to our brain about how it's working. And when you, for example, start dating somebody new and you're in sort of a healthy relationship, right, you start getting reinforcement from different aspects. It's not that push-pull kind of thing that drives the reinforcers. It's mm-hmm. more like, oh, I made him dinner and he said, thank you. Oh, he took me out to dinner and we had a nice time. And you start getting reinforced in different ways. And those actually produce the changes in the brain. So that your brain actually starts responding to relationships and other things differently, which helps sort of reinforce the behaviors. And now we're starting to see that change. I have a quick question. Do you distinguish between the brain and the mind? Yes. How do you draw that line? Mm, The brain is a structure. It is an organism built of cells, an organ technically built of cells and cells that behave in reasonably predictive ways, predictable ways. The mind is is an emergent property of the brain. So I, and I don't know, this is the $50 million question, right? What is the relationship between the brain and the mind? And how do we connect that? Because we know that we have cells and we have thresholds of excitation and we have action potentials and neurons talk to each other and they build relationships and that's LTP. How does that make a mind? No clue. So we- <laughs> There's a gap, there's a gap. A huge gap. There's this huge gap that we don't know how these patterns of cortical activity produce consciousness. We know that we're consciousness. We know that consciousness has different forms, but we still don't know how the brain produces the mind. I do know that the mind is a product of the brain. Do you know that? I believe that. I don't think that you can have a mind in the way that we understand a mind without a brain. I'm not saying that there isn't anything like a soul or some sort of eternal or infinite energy in there. Mm-hmm. That that we think of as sort of the person that may be in there as well, but I do think that that you can't have a mind the way that we understand minds without having a brain. Right, but you can have a brain without a mind. Absolutely, yeah. and that's pow- that's a powerful point. Yeah, the mind really is so much of how we experience one another. Right, and that's I mean that mind is intimate rela- intimately related to our consciousness, right? And the distinction between consciousness and the mind? Mm, I would say that the, well, that's a good question. I'm not sure that there is one. That's where I think that it might be more fuzzy, you know, mm-hmm. that most things that happened in, that happened in the mind are related to consciousness. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
fascinating, right? <laughs> oh, you know me. Questions with no answers. Those are my favorites. I like them. I, I like them. I like them. Those are the best kinds because then you can just keep the door open and just let whatever's going to come in keep coming in, right? It's like. Yeah. And it's, you know, opportunities to learn and be curious, you know? So what is what is something that you know or feel about change that you think could benefit others from knowing? It takes courage. And if you don't have any, you can borrow some. What are your suggestions for borrowing courage? Find someone who believes in you and what you're about to change. You know, even if you don't think you can do it, if you find someone who does, then you can do it. Mm. You just believe what they believe. But I think that change is a gift, you know, and it's so funny to me that most of us in, you know, whatever our spiritual journey looks like, most of us resist change, you know, but it's really hard to make ourselves embrace it, you know, and yet the reality is, is that everything changes every day, right? Nothing's ever the same. When I wake up, I'm a day older, you know, so something's different. I'm that much closer to death. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to think of it that way, but sometimes my brain helps me out. Um, <laughs> But the idea that anything is static is an illusion anyway. So why not tell yourself the truth, you know? And that even if it's fearful, then you find those things that eat, that anchor you, you know, mm-hmm. that tell you that no matter what happens, you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is, that, that, that is embracing change, right? I mean, there's. Yeah. yeah. Welcome it, you know? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I remember I was agonizing one time over quitting this job. And I was like, if I quit this job, what will this mean? And my therapist goes, come on, you have to quit things. It's important. It's a skill. Quit. The idea is, is that we change a lot. I mean, our whole development is changed. Where do we ever get this idea that we could keep things the same? You know? Well, also, like, that's a good point, too, like the reinforcement. Because I, I, I do this in my coaching. It's like, oh, no, we'll go off data. We don't go off of, like, what we maybe willy-nilly think. Like, let's go off data, like, what has been happening. And I think if we go back in our lives and we look at how much change we've gone through and persevered and built that muscle that I think just sometimes just looking back and being like, oh no, I've done this probably a million times. Like I can do it again. You know, so just that, just looking at the data of it to be able to go, no, I got this. Yeah. I've changed a lot. I continue to change and I'll keep changing. This is not bad, you know? And that's where the suffering is. It's just like that holding. So what about for like the the bigger picture, Dr. Thayer, if, you know, if, if you were getting serious and you were sitting with, you know, four of your best friends and you're like, all right, how, how do we change the world? When my sister and I explored that question, we came to the realization like, well, you don't change the world, you change yourself, right? So yeah. then, then we started exploring like, how do you change yourself? And that's where this podcast was born. So if you, if you were you know, using that framework of changing the world by changing yourself, what would you, what would you explore first? The answer that keeps pushing up is love. So whether it's loving myself and being kind to myself and honoring where I am today and in whatever journey that is. Um, but when I teach, I, that for me is an expression of love. One, I'm sharing something that I find fascinating and interesting, but I'm also, I'm, I get to play a small role in their change, right? And it's a way that I get to change their world just a little bit. If they walk out of my class a little bit better prepared, a little bit more grounded and able to sort of deal with some of the challenges that the world presents them, then I have loved them as best as I can. It can be a little dicey talking about love in a classroom. (laughs) I think you did it beautifully. I think that that will never be not received in the way that it was intended to be received. I hope so, because that's, it's, it is, it's from my heart completely, you know, and that's it. Thank you so much, Dr. Thayer, for your time today and your information and your willingness to share on such a candid level. I really, really appreciate you and your support in this project. And I I just adore you. And I definitely <laughs> felt that love in your class and, and also the excitement. And thank you for the access to so much information. You really did change my mind. <laughs> that makes me so happy. So you, I hope you know the feeling was mutual. It was such a treasure to have you. You know, I'm so glad that I got to, especially knowing kind of a little bit more about your destination and your interests and kind of what you're working with. I felt like this class, you know, the class that we did together could be really helpful for you, you know, and you were just a real joy, you know. I would love, okay, so there's a few things we didn't get to. And so if you're open to it in the future of coming back on the podcast, I would love to explore more with you. If that I would be happy to. Thing. Anything, anytime, I would always be happy to. I love Dr. Thayer. If you agree with that sentiment and want to hear more from her, 
and you enjoyed that interview, let me know so I can contact her and bring her back to the show to dive into more information. She is a just well of knowledge. I love that woman and I could talk to her forever. <laughs> oh, I love her too. It was so enjoyable listening uh, to both of you actually. But I think I really love the part, her quote, it's a lot easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking than it is to think yourself into a new way of acting. Ugh, that hit me. I just love it. And I think she continued on. It's if you want something to be different, do something different. It's just mm, sublime. I, I This is why I podcast. Okay. I, I think we did it. Listen, I don't know what we did, but we did it. <laughs> Look, unattainable ideals are overrated. We're way more connected and deserving than society's false sense of separation dictates us to be. You're not just one person. You're enough. Your effort is enough and change is possible. Question the standard that says otherwise, because what if almost is good enough? Just by tuning in, you're a part of our clan. Not in a culty way, though. <laughs> we don't know how far this ripple can go, but we're going to keep showing up. And we'll never get to perfection, but we're all going to be okay if we let the process be the solution and we see the value in the attempt. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Ripple Affect. We're looking forward to exploring a different facet of change with you next Tuesday. Same time, same place, next week. For show notes and additional resources, check out our website at rippleeffectpod.com. That's affect with an A. Kiara has worked diligently to make our website interactive. Please visit it so it wasn't all for nothing. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, there's a ton of resources there. DM us directly at rippleeffectpod on Instagram and let us know what you liked about our show or any of your own ideas. We're really excited to hear from you. We value your feedback because it helps us make the pod better and it's our way of including you in our process. Okay, so ratings aren't the point of why we do this. We really want to make a change in the world. But in the matrix, there are algorithms. So yeah, every single review we get helps the ripple go farther. To help us out, please take two seconds, find the ratings and review section on whatever platform you're listening from, click five stars, wink, wink, and leave a review. We know you're busy. So just saying hello or literally hi as the review helps us hack the matrix. We sincerely appreciate it. If you want to become officially initiated into our clan, again, not in a culty way, hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we're in it with you. Keep questioning. Stay curious. You got this, clan. A special thank you, love, and credit to the magnificent Mia Casasanta for this beautiful music you're listening to right now.